Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Episode 9, The Last King's Men. Hi and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy in England and my co-host today is Lady Guinevere in Boston. Hello listeners, it's Lady Gwyn here and today we have an episode all about the Brotherhood Without Banners. Yeah, we're going to talk about the origins of the Brotherhood Without Banners and the influences both from within the text and from real life. We'll also break down the members and have a Where Are They Now segment, bringing us up to date as of the end of Dance with Dragons. And we'll take a detailed look at the Brotherhood's possible connections with the River Lords and offer a theory on a character mystery that you might have missed. And we'll have readings set to music as usual, plus a rendition of the Maiden of the Tree song that's sung by Thomas Evans in A Storm of Swords. And this version will be sung by none other than Lady Gwyn herself. It should be a fun and hopefully enlightening episode today, so let's begin with the Brotherhood Without Banners. Lord Beric, Thoros of Mir, Sir Gladden, Lord Lothar, in the name of Robert of the House Baratheon, by the word of Eddard of the House Stark, his hand, I charge you to ride to the Westerlands with all haste, to cross the Red Fork of the Trident under the king's flag, and there bring the king's justice to the false knight, Gregor Clegane. So, we're going to start by looking at the origins of the Brotherhood Without Banners. After Ned sends Beric Dondarrion out under Robert's banner to bring the king's justice to the mountain that rides, we get many hints that Lord Beric is up to something in the Riverlands. Yeah, the first hint comes in A Game of Thrones, in Tyrion's point of view, when Tywin tells him, We also have a pair of Ned Stark's afterthoughts making a nuisance of themselves by harassing my foraging parties. Beric Dondarrion, some young lordling with delusions of valour. He has that fat jape of a priest with him, the one who likes to set his sword on fire. <laughs> and then Thoros and Beric are mentioned in Sansa's point of view when she hears a list of lords who are called to swear fealty to King Joffrey, read out in court. And they're mentioned again, they're said to be continuing to plague our foraging parties by Tywin. He says this to Tyrion and Kevin in the War Council after Jaime's capture at Whispering Woods. And then, in a Catelyn point of view, in A Clash of Kings, her uncle Brynden tells her, 
This southern lordling, Beric Dundarian, has been raiding the raiders, falling upon Lord Tywin's foraging parties and vanishing back into the woods. It's said that Sir Burton Craycall was boasting that he'd slain Dundarian until he led his column into one of Lord Beric's traps and got every man of them killed. And Davos tells Maester Cresson that Beric Dundarian's gone missing. And when Armory Lorch comes upon Euron and his recruits at the Holdfast in the Riverlands, they wonder if Euron is one of Lord Beric's cravens. And later, when Arya and Gendry and Hot Pie are captured by the mountain's men in the village on the south banks of the God's Eye, the very first question they're asked is if they know anything about, quote, that Horson Dondarian. Yeah, and once they become captives in the storehouse, Arya quickly learns that seeking information on Lord Beric's movements is the primary motivation for the Tickler's daily questioning and torture. Right, and although this all remains mainly background information, it's mentioned often enough that we know Beric Dondarian shouldn't be forgotten. However, we don't begin to grasp his significance until Arya meets Thomas Evans, Lem Lemoncloak, and Angai in A Storm of Swords. So shortly after their escape from Harrenhal, Aya, Gendry and Hot Pie are discovered on the banks of the Trident by Tom, Lem and Angai. Thomas Evans tries to convince the youngsters that they're friends, but Aya isn't ready to trust anyone after the trauma that she's been through. Now, Tom seems a cheerful enough sort with his wood harp and his love of singing. It's clear right away that Angai is a deadly archer and Lem is described as a tall man with the look of a soldier. In response to questions about who they are, Angai tells them we're king's men. Left with no choice, the youngsters accompany the newcomers to the Inn of the Kneeling Man. And not long after their arrival there, as Tom tells Arya that the king's men need their horses, Gendry bursts in with news of soldiers arriving, a dozen of them. Then into the scene comes, and quote, a Tairoshi, even bigger than Lem, with a great thick beard, bright green at the ends, but growing out grey whom we learn is called Greenbeard. And there's also a one-eyed man in a rusty pot helm that can only be Jack Belucky, and a number of others, including a pair of crossbowmen, a wounded man, an archer with a head of stiff yellow hair, a spearman in a lion-crested helm, an older man with a limp, a bravosi sellsword, and Harwin. Yeah, in one of the most emotional reunions in the series to date, in our opinion, though you don't get many reunions in this story, Arya recognises the last man through the door as Harwin, son of Hullen, whom she last saw in King's Landing as a member of her father's guard. Not only is Arya's relief at finding a familiar face palpable, Harwin is visibly moved. And of course, from that moment, Arya's secret is out. But so is the identity of this band of King's men, since we know that Harwin was among the men sent from King's Landing by Ned Stark. And Harwin soon tells Arya the whole tale of the six score men sent out with Lord Beric to bring justice to Gregor Clegane, how Lord Tywin intended it as a trap for her father, and how the mountain fell upon them and killed two-thirds of their number. And then King Robert died, and Joffrey became king. But the mountain's men continued to devastate the Riverlands. And this put the group in the position of becoming outlaws, fighting on to protect the small folk, because, as Lord Beric said, they were still king's men, and these were the king's people the lions were savaging. If we could not fight for Robert, we would fight for them, until every man of us was dead. 
Yeah, and although many were killed, soon others showed up to join the band of outlaws. More knights and squires, but common people as well. As Harwin says, men of all sorts, and women too, children, even dogs. And though Harwin tells Arya the tale of Lord Beric's brush with death in the first encounter with Gregor Clegane, it's Arya herself who remembers the stories she heard at Harrenhal about Beric Dondarrion's charmed life. Lord Beric, the Wisp of the Wood. Lord Beric, who'd been killed by Vargo Hote, and before that by Sir Armory Lorch, and twice by the Mountain That Rides. Right, and although it's not clear what exactly is going on, we begin to get the sense that all is not as it seems with Beric Tondarian, that perhaps he's more than simply lucky. Yeah, but it's not until a couple of chapters later that we finally meet the Lightning Lord. In the meantime, we begin to learn the breadth of the Brotherhood's network in the Riverlands. From small folk hiding in abandoned villages, to Lady Ravella Smallwood at Acorn Hall, from a tiny white-haired woman in an ancient grove, to the whores at the Peach Brothel in Stony Sept. This group really has a lot of connections. And it's at Stony Sept that another member of the Brotherhood, the Mad Huntsman, brings in Sander Clegane as a captive. While many of those presents would have seen him executed for being a lion, Lem and Greenbeard, with some help from Tom, insist that he be brought before Lord Beric for justice. And when they bring Sander to Thoros and Lord Beric in the hollow hill that seems to serve as the band's headquarters, we finally get a real sense of the Brotherhood's methods and just what is going on with Beric Dondarrion. Yeah, and it's in answer to Clegane's disbelief at finding first Thoros of Mir and then Lord Beric in this setting that we get the full story of the Brotherhood as well as the first mention of the term Brotherhood Without Banners. We learn that they swear to defend the realm and its people from the butchery and pillage of war. And we also learn that they pledge justice and a fair trial to those that fall into their hands. Lord Beric hears Arya's accusation that the Hound murdered Micah and sentences him to trial by battle. It seems like perhaps a fair solution until Thoros invokes the Lord of Light and Beric sets his blade aflame. And given what we know about Sandor, this really seems to give an unfair advantage to Beric. But in spite of his obvious terror and rage and the fact that he himself is burned, Sandor Clegane manages to kill Lord Beric. Yeah, so not only is Sandor declared innocent, but we finally learn what's going on with Beric when, after being carried off with Thoros, he rises and returns to personally absolve the Hound. So it's here that we learn that in addition to being a Brotherhood of Knights pledged to defend the people, the Brotherhood Without Banners is devoted to R'hllor, who has been working miracles on Lord Beric via Thoros. Yeah, Lord Beric confesses to Arya that Thoros has brought him back six times. She accepts this, perhaps unusually, since Harwin and Lem seem to be in some kind of denial about the power Thoros has. Right, after Lem tells Arya what a great healer Thoros is, Beric smiles sadly and tells her, even brave men blind themselves sometimes when they are afraid to see. But whether all of the Brotherhood Without Banners see the truth or not, they remain committed to R'hllor, as we see when they free a small group of brown brothers from some of the Bloody Mummers. 
Yeah, after the BWB rescue the eight Brown brothers and kill or execute the mummers they find in the septry, a young novice attempts to forbid them from praying to the false god Relore. It's Lem Lemoncloak who replies, Bugger that, he's our god too, and you owe us for your bloody lives. And what's false about him? Might be your smith can mend a broken sword, but can he heal a broken man? And this indicates the power that Relore has asserted on the group. Even those who might not believe in the resurrections can see the influence that's at work here, bringing this group together in a communal effort to bring justice to a world that might seem to have gone mad. Well, the Brotherhood Without Banners certainly seem to have found their origins in a noble desire for justice and bringing aid to the people of the Riverlands. And shortly we'll be looking at some of the inspirations for such a group, as well as the direction their fight for justice in the Riverlands might take. But first, it's time for a reading. Here's Yoke Boy with the Manifesto of the Brotherhood Without Banners. When we left King's Landing, we were men of Winterfell, and men of Darry, and men of Blackhaven, Mallory men, and Wilds men. We were knights and squires and men-at-arms, lords and commoners, bound together only by our purpose. Six score of us set out to bring the King's justice to your brother, Six score brave men and true, led by a fool in a starry cloak. The voice came from the man seated amongst the weirwood roots halfway up the wall. The speaker was descending the tangle of steps towards the floor, a scarecrow of a man. He wore a ragged black cloak speckled with stars and an iron breastplate dinted by a hundred battles. A thicket of red-gold hair hid most of his face, save for a bald spot above his left ear where his head had been smashed in. More than 80 of our company are dead now, but others have taken up the swords that fell from their hands. When he reached the floor, the outlaws moved aside to let him pass. One of his eyes was gone, Arya saw, the flesh about the socket scarred and puckered, and he had a dark black ring all around his neck. With their help, we fight on as best we can for Robert and the realm. Robert, rasped Sandor Clegane, incredulous. Ned Stark sent us out, said Pothelm Jack be lucky. But he was sitting the Iron Throne when he gave us our commands, so we were never truly his men, but Robert's. Robert is the King of the Worms now, is that why you're down in the earth, to keep his court for him? The King is dead, the Scarecrow Knight admitted, but we are still King's men, though the royal banner we bore was lost at the Mummer's Ford when your brother's butchers fell upon us. He touched his breast with a fist. Robert is slain, but his realm remains, and we defend her. So, following that reading, where we got our first glimpse at the Brotherhood Without Banners mission statement, we're going to take a quick look at the inspirations for this group, both in story and from real life. Yeah, we can see through a number of references in the text that the Brotherhood Without Banners bears a striking resemblance to an earlier Westerosi bandit group, the Kingswood Brotherhood. But we can also trace George's possible inspiration for the BWB to the well-known medieval outlaw gang, Robin Hood and his Merry Men. Right. Robin Hood was a legendary English outlaw who stole from the rich to feed the poor at a time of chaos in England. The true king of the realm was absent, a potential usurper was in power, and corrupt magnates ruled the land. Into this scenario stepped Robin Hood, allegedly a one-time earl whose lands had been usurped. 
So obviously there are quite a few parallels with Beric Dondarrion and his BWB right there. Let's see if we can break down a few more before we look at the Kingswood Brotherhood. Okay, let's first look at some of the members of Robin's band. Most of us have probably heard of the giant Little John, and some of us might have heard of the wandering minstrel Alan Adale, the charming Will Scarlet, and the renegade priest Friar Tuck. We think there are definitely similarities between these characters and the big man Lem Lemoncloak, the singer Thomas Evans, the irrepressible archer Angi, and of course the red priest Thoros of Mir. Probably less obvious is Robin Hood's friend Much the Miller's son, who is specifically nodded out in the list of Lannister victims that the Brotherhood recite to the Hound at his trial. Yeah, one of the BWB mentions Mudge the Miller's son, which is a clear nod. And in addition to character parallels, Robin Hood's band was known to dwell in caves in the forest, much like the BWB in their Hollow Hill. And of course, the legendary archery contest won by Robin himself certainly has some echoes with Angai's tournament victory at the Tourney of the Hand. And probably the most telling parallel, though, is the one we alluded to at the start. A merry band of outlaws protecting the small folk from a ravaging noble class in the name of an absent king. That's right, and this is just the kind of historical illusion that we know George is very fond of using, and we think it's a lot of fun to look for these kinds of parallels. But we're not done with Robin Hood yet, because George has actually used this illusion once already. Yeah, in a clever little manoeuvre, the Brotherhood Without Banners is thought by many in-universe characters to be modelled on the legendary Kingswood Brotherhood, a group that has even more Robin Hood parallels than the BWB. Yeah, it does seem to, uh, starting with the fact that apparently the Kingswood Brotherhood had a similar mission to Robin Hood's band and, of course, the BWB. Jamie says of the Kingswood Brotherhood, the forest folk had looked to Toyne to defend them. And, of course, that's Simon Toyne, the leader of the Kingswood Brotherhood. And now both the Merry Men and the Kingswood Brotherhood were renowned for their archery skills. Here's Ulmer on the legendary Kingswood archer Fletcher Dick. You have a good eye and a steady hand, but you'll need a deal more to best a man of the Kingswood. Fletcher Dick it was who showed me how to bend the bow, and no finer archer ever lived. Which leads to the comparison between Robin Hood's secret entrance into the Silver Arrow archery competition and Simon Toyne's entry into the Tourney of Storm's End as a mystery knight. Yeah, that's a good one. And of course, there's the fact that the Kingswood Brotherhood live in the Kingswood, while Robin Hood and company live in the King's Forest, Sherwood. Add to that Wenda and Big Belly Ben as analogues of Marion and Little John. And as a final in-universe nod, we have Oswin the Thrice-Hanged, whose relatively murky story of being hanged three times and living to tell the tale sounds an awful lot like Lord Berwick, who was hanged twice and died seven times. So there's obviously a lot going on there thematically and with parallels between these three groups. And no doubt George had some fun with it, as we did as readers. So that's our look at the inspiration for George's Brotherhood Without Banners, with the parallels to Robin Hood. And next up, we have Lady Gwyn's theory about the true identity of the mysterious Lem Lemoncloak. Lem, is that you? Still wearing the same ratty cloak, are you? I know why you never wash it, I do. 
You're afraid all the piss will wash out and we'll see you're really a knight of the king's guard. So now we're going to look at Lady Gwyn's theory on a secret identity of one of the Brotherhood Without Banners that, if true, could have some bearing on the RLJ theory. Lem Lemoncloak, as we indicated, is one of the leaders of the BWB. He appears on page with no true name and no history, in spite of the fact that we get names and backstories for many of the BWB, including several of far less significance to the narrative. And probably as living proof of the fact that I spend way too much time thinking about A Song of Ice and Fire, I've wondered if there's a connection between Lem and another character whose name comes up just a couple of times, Sir Richard Lonmouth. And this might seem like some insignificant minor character mystery, but we think Richard Lonmouth, if he's still alive, is a character of tremendous importance. He was Prince Rhaegar's squire and companion, and friend and bannerman to Robert Baratheon. He's one of the only men who knew both men well. This is why we wanted to present Lem as being Lonmouth. There could be serious implications for the RLJ theory here. Lonmouth might have important insight on the events leading up to the disappearance of Lyanna, and if he's Lem, he might be a surprise candidate for some kind of reveal. And aside from that, Lonmouth is intriguing anyway, as he must have had to choose between Rhaegar and Robert, as we'll discuss. So we should probably start with a question. What would make you connect Lem with Richard Lonmouth, the one-time squiring companion of Prince Rhaegar Targaryen? Well, first of all, thanks to posters at Westeros.org who helped to flesh out a few of these ideas in a thread there last year. So, the connection. At first, it was mostly the color of his cloak and a chance association with kisses, combined with the conviction that the Knight of Skulls and Kisses, Lonmouth's alias, is meant to be significant. But it turns out that there are actually quite a few textual hints that support the connection. Right, and to add a visual, the house arms of House Lonmouth are described as quartered of six, red lips on yellow, and yellow skulls on black. So the connection of kisses with the yellow cloak of Lem might be significant. Yeah, I think so. So now let's take a look at some of the textual hints that make that connection with kisses. In A Storm of Swords, the ghost of High Heart demands payment for her news. She says, A skin of wine for my dreams, and for my news a kiss from the great oaf in the yellow cloak. His mouth will taste of lemons, and mine of bones. Yes, so there we have bones and kisses connected with Lem's yellow cloak via the ghost of High Heart's rather unusual comment. And it's reasonable to think that since the ghost calls him a great oaf, She doesn't really want a kiss from him because he's very attractive. (laughs) Yes. Well, that was the connection that provided the aha. But there's also this from earlier, when the Brotherhood first met the Ghost of High Heart on page. At that meeting, the woman speaks of most everyone in terms of their sigils or representations of their houses. And she had this exchange with Lem. Dreams, grumbled Lem Lemon Cloak. What good are dreams? Fishwoman and drowned crows. I had a dream myself last night. I was kissing this tavern wench I used to know. Are you going to pay me for that, old woman? The wench is dead, the woman hissed. Only worms may kiss her now. So, again, kissing. Only this time Lem's kiss is for someone dead. Perhaps a skull is implied. 
The ghost of High Heart's interactions here are very strange and out of place, we think. Why does she talk about Lem kissing her and someone else? Given she has special insights, does she know that Lem could be the Knight of Skulls and Kisses? Right. It's really clear, though, the connecting reference at both meetings with the ghost of High Heart for Lem is bones and kisses. Yeah, the symbolism is quite strong, I think. And then recall that when Arya first met him, she thought he had the look of a soldier. Yes, here's the description. The man beside him stood a good foot taller and had the look of a soldier. A long sword and dirk hung from his studded leather belt. Rows of overlapping steel rings were sewn onto his shirt, and his head was covered by a black iron half-helm shaped like a cone. He had bad teeth and a bushy brown beard, but it was his hooded yellow cloak that drew the eye. Thick and heavy and stained here with grass and there with blood, frayed along the bottom and patched with deerskin on the right shoulder, the great cloak gave the big man the look of some huge yellow bird. Okay, now from lack of direct reference, it appears that Lem was not one of the original company that set out from King's Landing with Lord Berwick, but one of those who joined the Brotherhood in the Riverlands. Yet he does make a possibly revealing comment in this exchange. It says, Angai the archer said, We're king's men. Aya frowned. Which king? King Robert, said Lem, in his yellow cloak. So we wonder how to explain a large man, loyal to Robert, who has the look of a soldier, wears a distinctive yellow cloak, and was living in the Riverlands prior to Lord Berwick's mission. One thing that I think we should make note of is the fabric of the cloak. Described as thick and heavy and dyed a bright yellow, it seems very much the garment of someone from the upper classes, worn and patched as it is. Now, let's take a look at the bare facts of Richard Lonmouth to see if there's anything we can surmise. Well, we know from Barriston that Lonmouth was once Prince Rhaegar's squire and companion. It says... Miles Mouton was Prince Rhaegar's squire, and Richard Lonmouth after him. When they won their spurs, he knighted them himself, and they remained his close companions. And the world of ice and fire tells us that Sir Richard Lonmouth was among Rhaegar's supporters at court when there was an obvious divide between Rhaegar and Ares. But we also know that House Lonmouth was a Stormlands house, and that Sir Richard was a one-time drinking companion to the Lord of the Stormlands, Robert Baratheon. Right, from Mira Reed's tale of the tourney of Harrenhal, we learn the Stormlord drank down the Knight of Skulls and Kisses in a wine cup war. And knowing Robert's size and reputation as a prodigious drinker, we think Richard Lonmouth must have been a very large man to take on the Stormlord at drinking. And as we know, Lem is also a very large man known to enjoy his drink. Yes, he's described as being of a height with the hound. And more than once, we're reminded that the BWB members enjoy their ale. So one thing we're never told is which side Lonmouth joined in Robert's Rebellion. Rhaegar's other companion, Miles Mouton, fought for the Targaryens and was killed at Stony Sept by Robert Baratheon himself. Even though the world of ice and fire gives a strong hint that Lonmouth may have been with Rhaegar when he rode into the Riverlands prior to his fateful meeting with Lyanna Stark in the vicinity of Harrenhal, the last we hear of Lonmouth for certain doesn't give a clear indication. No, it doesn't. Mira tells us that following the appearance of the Knight of the Laughing Tree at the Harrenhal tourney, 
The Stormlord and the Knight of Skulls and Kisses each swore they would unmask him, and the king himself urged men to challenge him, declaring that the face behind the helm was no friend of his. The king was wroth and even sent his son, the Dragon Prince, to seek the man, but all they ever found was his painted shield. So we have no clear indication of which house he would side with, that of his friend and mentor, Rhaegar Targaryen, or that of his drinking buddy and overlord, Robert Baratheon. But perhaps the words of House Lonmouth might be a hint that Sir Richard did indeed take a side. Yes, yeah, so we said the Lonmouth colour seems to be yellow, and the Lonmouth house words are, the choice is yours. And we have to wonder why we've been given this piece of information. There's some large and far more prominent houses that we don't know the house words of, so it's strange that we've been given the Lonmouth words, especially as it seems Sir Richard must have had divided loyalties on the trident. So these words, the choice is yours, certainly choice is a theme we could apply not only to Richard Lonmouth's potential rebellion conflict, but to Lem Lemoncloak's present-day arc as well. Yes, in his role as hangman for the Brotherhood Without Banners, Lem carries out sentences based on choice. In the case of Merritt Frey, Lem gives the choice to Lady Stoneheart before carrying out the sentence. She don't speak, said the big man in the yellow cloak. You bloody bastards cut her throat too deep for that, but she remembers. He turned to the dead woman and said, What do you say, milady? Was he part of it? Then later, at Brienne's trial, the choice is given by the Northman, while the sentence is carried out by Lem. The Northman said, She says that you must choose. Take the sword and slay the Kingslayer, or be hanged for a betrayer. The sword or the noose, she says. Choose, she says. Choose. So Lem is involved in choices being offered by the Brotherhood Without Banners, while there's also enough evidence to speculate that he's made another fateful choice in his past. While choice can be seen as a major theme of A Song of Ice and Fire, the fact that it's prominently featured in the house words of a minor house seems almost like a flag saying, Look closely here! Looking closely in this case has certainly led to some interesting theorizing. Yeah, I think it has. And now we're going to tread into speculative territory with the theme of choice. Suppose Richard Lonmouth chose his overlord, Robert Baratheon, and fought on his behalf during the rebellion. It does seem plausible, since the world of ice and fire indicates that Lonmouth may have supported regime change. Right, and looking at it that way, just after Arya, Gendry, and Hotpie are taken in by the Brotherhood without banners, the company arrives at the Inn of the Kneeling Man. Here the young people are given ale by the innkeeper's wife because she has no milk or clean water to offer. Here's the passage. The river water tastes of war with all the dead men drifting downstream. If I served you a cup of soup full of dead flies, would you drink it? Ari would, said Hotpie. I mean squab. So would Lem, offered Angai with a sly smile. Hmm, so what does this mean? Why would Angai say this? Did Lem once drift in the river with the dead? Much later, the elder brother on the Quiet Isle tells Brienne his story of being left for dead in the river after the battle on the Trident and washing up downriver, alive and reborn, to a new life. Could something similar have happened to Lem? Is this what Angai is getting at here? Yeah, it certainly seems possible. 
And later, Lem reveals some local knowledge that just might indicate that he was in the area as these events occurred. He says, Lord Leicester's sons died in Robert's Rebellion, grumbled Lem. Some on one side, some on the other. He's not been right in the head since. Right, he seems to know a bit of history there. And later at the Peach, the brothel in Stony Set, where Robert may have taken refuge before his battle there, Tansy has this to say to Lem. Lem, is that you? Still wearing the same ratty cloak, are you? I know why you never wash it, I do. You're afraid all the piss will wash out, and we'll see you're really a knight of the king's guard. <laughs> so, if Lem is Richard Lonmouth, he might have been present at Stony Sept with Robert, and be known to Tansy from that event. If she had knowledge of him being a knight in the service to the man who went on to become the king, it might explain her Kingsguard joke. But why did he vanish from the page then? Well, speculation brings us back to A Feast for Crows and Brienne's point of view where Septon Maribold describes to Brienne, Pod and Zahail the inner turmoil of the broken man. Yeah, here's the passage. Even a man who has survived a hundred fights can break in his hundred and first. Brothers watch their brothers die, fathers lose their sons, friends see their friends trying to hold their entrails in after they've been gutted by an axe. They take a wound, and when that's half healed, they take another. And one day they look around and realize all their friends and kin are gone. And the knights come down on them, faceless men clad all in steel, and the iron thunder of their charge seems to fill the world. And the man breaks. So Maribold makes it clear that anyone can break at any time in war. Every man has his limit, and it's just possible that Sir Richard reached it in the aftermath of the Trident. Two references make us believe this could be what happened to Lem. Yeah, we have this one from Storm. Bugger that, said Lem Lemoncloak. He's our god too. You owe us for your bloody lives. And what's false about him? Might be your smith can mend a broken sword, but can he heal a broken man? And then Thoros to Brienne in Feast says, You're not the only one with wounds, Lady Brienne. Some of my brothers were good men when this began. So, could war have damaged Sir Richard Lonmouth? Was he there when his friends Robert and Rhaegar were fighting, one killing the other? Did the guilt of his choice weigh heavily upon him? Did knowing Rhaegar's dead children had been presented to Robert damage him further? And could he have re-emerged in the Rivelands as the mysterious Lem Lemoncloak? Well, it all seems possible, but one thing we need to look for is a narrative purpose to this mystery. If we return to the tourney of Harrenhal and the Knight of Skulls and Kisses vow to unmask the Knight of the Laughing Tree whom most of us assume to be Lyanna Stark, we think we might have found a clue. Yeah, we know that George uses thematic parallels frequently in his narrative, and we also know that Arya Stark bears a resemblance to her aunt. Ned tells her, Lyanna might have carried a sword if my father had allowed it. You remind me of her sometimes. You even look like her. And looking at some of the interactions between Arya and Lem, one incident in particular stands out. When Arya learns that she is, in truth, the prisoner of the Brotherhood Without Banners, she attempts to flee. Here's the scene as she rides away. When she glanced back over her shoulder, four of them were coming after her, 
Anga and Harwin and Greenbeard racing side by side with Lem farther back, his big yellow cloak flapping behind him as he rode. Yes, so it's easy enough to imagine a scene with Liana pursued over a similar ground by a group including Sir Richard Lomuth. Later, almost like a sly nod to this possibility, Tom sings to Arya and even prefaces it with a wink. Yeah, and here's the verse sounding very much like a possible homage to the Night of the Laughing Tree. And how she smiled and how she laughed, the maiden of the tree, she spun away and said to him, No feather bed for me. I'll wear a gown of golden leaves and bind my hair with grass, but you can be my forest love and me your forest lass. Yes, so the maiden of the tree. And we think it's possible that what we're going to say, it could be the narrative purpose if Lem turned out to be Richard Lonmouth. He might be able to shed light on Rhaegar and Lyanna's first interaction and the reason Rhaegar crowned Lyanna Queen of Love and Beauty. And possibly, if he remained in the prince's confidence, as the world of ice and fire might indicate, the events that came after. At the very least, who would be one of the few attendees of the Harrenhal tourney who's actually still alive. Yeah, that's right. And that could place him in the same category as the elusive Howland Reed as one who knows much and more. Right. Yes. So, in conclusion, Sir Richard Lonmouth, whose house colors are black and yellow, is presented as a close friend of Prince Rhaegar's, who was at the tourney of Harrenhal. His fate following Robert's rebellion is never mentioned. And during the War of the Five Kings, an outlaw who has the look of a soldier, but no known name or history, appears in the Riverlands wearing a distinctive yellow cloak. In his arc, Lem is associated with kisses and choices, both known motifs of House Lonmouth. Yeah, and based on those associations, we think a connection between the two can be made. A closer reading allows further subtle connections to be seen. And as to the significance of this theory, we wonder if Sir Richard in hiding could have some interesting insight into the story of Rhaegar Targaryen and Lyanna Stark. So that's our look at the true identity of Lem Lemon Cloak. And now it's time for a song. When we decided to do an episode on the Brotherhood Without Banners, we knew we wanted to feature a song from the Brotherhood's own troubadour, Thomas Evanstreams. The problem was, we couldn't find any. Yeah, so I encouraged Lady Gwyn to have a go herself. She doesn't claim to be a professional singer by any means, but in the spirit of Radio Westeros, she decided, what the heck, and gave it a go. So here's the first ever recorded version. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Of Maiden of the Tree from A Storm of Swords. How she smiled and how she laughed and And that was Lady Gwynne's rendition of Maiden of the Tree. And the music we use there is called Folk Round by Kevin MacLeod. So thanks to him too. So Lady Gwynne, thanks for being a great sport there and singing for us. Oh, it's no problem. I don't really claim to be a singer at all, but I thought it would be fun to just give it a shot. Yes, so we hope that you listeners liked it. And hats off to Lady Gwynne for having the courage to do that. Put it this way, you wouldn't want to hear me trying. (laughs) Well, if you had told me when we started podcasting that I'd end up broadcasting myself singing, I wouldn't have believed you. Anyway, now we're going to move right into another reading, which will be followed by our discussion of what's going on in the Riverlands with the Brotherhood Without Banners and the Riverlords in the wake of the Red Wedding. As Jamie Lannister makes his way to Riverrun to lift the siege there, he makes a stop at Castle Darry, where he receives news about a certain outlaw band. Yeah, we think there are some hints here about the possible depth of the connections that we'll be exploring next. So here's the scene from Castle Darry as Jamie gets an inkling of what he's up against in the Riverlands. Jamie turned once more to Lady Maria. How far did Black Walder track this hooded woman and her men? His hounds picked up their scent again north of Hagsmire, the older woman told him. He swears that he was no more than half a day behind them when they vanished into the neck. Let them rot there, declared Sir Kenos cheerfully. If the gods are good, they'll be swallowed up in quicksand or gobbled down by lizard lions. Or taken in by frog eaters, said Sir Danwell Frey. I would not put it past the Cranig men to shelter outlaws. Would that it were only them, said Lady Maria. Some of the river lords are hand in glove with Lord Beric's men as well. The small folk, too, sniffed her daughter. Sir Harwin says they hide them and feed them, and when he asks where they've gone, they lie! They lie to their own lords! 
Have their tongues out, urged Strongbore. Good luck getting answers then, said Jamie. If you want their help, you need to make them love you. That was how Arthur Dane did it when we rode against the Kingswood Brotherhood. He paid the small folk for the food we ate, brought their grievances to King Eris, expanded the grazing lands around their villages, even won them the right to fell a certain number of trees each year and take a few of the king's deer during the autumn. The forest folk had looked to Toyne to defend them, but Sir Arthur did more for them than the Brotherhood could ever hope to do, and won them to our side. After that, the rest was easy. Okay, hope you enjoyed that reading. Now we're going to take a look at the Riverlands from the end of A Feast for Crows. There seems to be a merging of agendas going on as indicators in that reading, with the BWB under Lady Stoneheart revenge-targeting Freys, and some of the Riverlords seeming to remain loyal to the Stark cause. Lady Gwyn has written extensively on this subject, and we've taken some time to break down what's going on and where things could be going here. Well, it's a fascinating topic, I think, and one that's bound to be highly significant early in the Winds of Winter. I see the web of the Riverlands becoming tied to what's going on in the North, a situation that we'll be addressing in a later episode. For now, it seems like we have a good reason to suspect cooperation between the Riverlords and the Brotherhood Without Banners. So we're mostly going to examine Jamie's final POV chapters in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, as he enters BWB territory for the first time since he escaped captivity at Riverrun. When Jamie arrives in the Riverlands, the siege of Riverrun is not going well. Davin Lannister's forces consist of a contingent of Freys under the command of Sir Ryman Frey, his own Westland forces, Lord Emmon Frey, the new-made Lord of Riverrun, and Sir Forley Prester's host and an assortment of Riverlords who bent the knee. Yeah, but as Davin tells Jamie, the Riverlanders are a sullen lot, good for sulking in their tents, but not much more. Davin also tells Jamie that half the men he sends to forage for supplies never return. Some desert, but others are found dead. Yeah, he says it might be outlaws or not. There are still bands of Northmen about, and these lords of the Trident may have bent their knees, but methinks their hearts are still wolfish. He then goes on to report, My scouts report fires in the high places at night, signal fires, they think, as if there were a ring of watchers all around us. So, signal fires at night, bands of Northmen roaming about, and river lords with wolfish hearts. An interesting combination of things. Yes, it is. And regarding the bands of Northmen, a brief review of the numbers is in order, I think. Rob goes to the Red Wedding with 3,500 men, and we know that most of those 3,500 were slaughtered. But perhaps not all. Right. Edwin Frey tells Jamie... We found a thousand corpses afterward. Once they've spent a few days in the river, they all look much the same. As much as he might have been casually tossing off a number, we wonder about the size of the force that might have broken away with Jason Malister, Mage Mormont, and Galbert Glover. Yeah, they were planning to sail into the Neck and join up with Rob for his assault on Mokalin. So possibly a force of some size there. And then Roose Bolton arrives and lets us know that he has left a force at the Green Fork guarding the crossing. Yes, he says, I left 600 men at the ford, spearmen from the rills, the mountains, and the white knife, a hundred hornwood longbows, some free riders and hedge knights, and a strong force of stout and Kerwin men to stiffen them. 
Ronald Stout, and Sir Kyle Condon have the command. So that's Riswell's, Hornwood men, probably some Manderleys and Locks, the Stouts and Kerwins, and an assortment of clansmen. And we never hear of this group, which was left to keep the mountain that rides from crossing over the river again. And it doesn't seem as if they run afoul of Gregor Clegane. At least a skirmish with this group is never mentioned. So we think it's worth noting that they could be among the Northmen still at large. Yeah, they could be. And finally, we have the fact that of the men in Roos Bolton's rearguard, not all of them were killed or captured in the ambush en route to the twins. Right. He tells Catelyn... Two-thirds of my strength was on the north side when the Lannisters attacked those still waiting to cross. Nori, Locke, and Burley men chiefly, with Sir Wylas Manderley and his White Harbour Knights as rearguard. I was on the wrong side of the trident, powerless to help them. Sir Wylas rallied our men as best he could, but Gregor Clegane attacked with heavy horse and drove them into the river. As many drowned as were cut down. More fled, and the rest were taken captive. Yes, it says more fled. So some of the rearguard escaped there. Now, while we can only begin to guess at actual troop sizes, and George has actually said that this is one detail that's frequently wrong in POVs, it seems like there is room to believe that among the bands Davin mentions, there could be two substantial forces from the Northern Army who remain armed and under the command of a war leader, in addition to the scattered remnants of Bolton's rearguard. Now let's look at these wolfish river lords. Upon arriving in the camps at River Run, Jamie makes note of their banners. Yeah, Jamie notes Leicester and Vance, Root and Goodbrook, the acorns of House Smallwood, and Lord Piper's Dancing Maiden. The banners he did not see gave him pause. The silver eagle of Malister was nowhere in evidence, nor the red horse of Bracken, the willow of the Rigers, and the twining snakes of Page. None had come to join the siege. So, some of the major Riverlands houses are absent, and Davin Lannister doesn't trust the loyalty of those who are present. The question is... What are these lords holding out for? Yeah, well, we think we get a clue when Jamie meets with Brynden Tully to offer terms and suggest the Blackfish take the Black by noting that Jon Snow is now the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Right, this seems like a fair offer, but Tully reacts with suspicion. He says, Catelyn never trusted the boy, as I recall, no more than she trusted Theon Greyjoy. It would seem she was right about them both. Yeah, so why that comparison with Theon Greyjoy? Because John has made common course with Stannis? Would Brynden Tully even know that? While one could make a case that the Blackfish was far away at Riverrun when Rob's will was signed in Hag's Mire and is unaware of its contents... As evidenced by his next exchange with Jamie, he's still flying the direwolf of Stark above Riverrun many months later. Surely he's holding out because he knows that there's an heir. Yeah, he tells Jamie, lift your eyes and you will see that the direwolf still flies above our walls. Right, and coming from someone who thinks all of Ned and Kat's children are dead and has just dismissed the only surviving Stark out of hand, this seems to be quite an odd statement. Is it empty bravado or a subtle threat? It seems like the latter is more the Blackfish's style. Yes, it does. 
Okay, so when the Blackfish refuses to consider terms, Jamie's next move is to retrieve Edmure Tully from the Frey's gallows. As he cuts him down, he is accosted by Sir Ryman Frey in company of a whore wearing a very curious crown. A circlet of hammered bronze, graven with runes and ringed with small black swords. There can be no doubt that this was Rob Stark's crown, as we've seen it before, and we will see it again in the possession of someone who recognizes it. But we'd like to make careful note of two witnesses to the scene. Yeah, the first is a singer with a wood harp who can be none other than Tom O'Sevenstreams. The second is the whore herself. We learn that Jamie dismisses Sir Ryman and that not long after he and his escort of 15 armed men have been hanged just south of Fairmarket on their way back to the Twins, presumably by the BWB. As Walder Rivers tells Jamie, it's almost as if they knew that he would be returning to the Twins and with a small escort. Hmm, and since we know by the crown's later reappearance that Ryman did not in fact leave the crown as Jamie ordered, we can assume that he was still in the company of the whore as well. So we wonder if she might have been the source of the Brotherhood's information. We find it very interesting that Peter Frey was also in the company of a whore just before he was hanged by the Brotherhood Without Banners. Yeah, he was also with a whore. In Merritt's POV, he thinks... Let them hang him. He brought this on himself. It's no more than he deserves. Wandering off with some bloody camp follower like a stag in rut. Hmm, so two phrase in the company of camp followers. And now fast forwarding a bit to A Dance with Dragons, we've also noticed the speed with which the Brotherhood, in the person of Brienne of Tarth, were able to track Jamie to Pennytree after his visit to Raventree Hall. Yeah, remember Hildy, the camp follower seen with Lord Jonas Bracken? Recall that the day Jamie met with Jonas and Lord Titus and Hildy too, he departed Raventree Hall and arrived at Pennytree that same evening. Around midnight, Brienne rode into the camp looking for him. So, can it be coincidence that in three cases where the Brotherhood Without Banners is looking for a target and quickly locates him, there turns out to have been a camp follower in his presence? We wonder if the Brotherhood is using women to soft-target individual Freys. While there's probably a much more massive Frey extermination plan in the works, this would speak volumes about the Brotherhood's operations possibly being much more covert and sophisticated than we thought. Exactly. They could be using whores to extract vital information. So back to Jamie at Riverrun. After freeing Ed Muir, he delivers his terms in the presence of his squires, Pia and Tom O'Sevens. Ed Muir must convince the Blackfish to yield the castle. If he does, the small folk will remain unharmed. and The garrison, including the Blackfish, will all have the option of taking the Black and Ed Muir can choose between the Wall and captivity with his wife and child at Castley Rock. Yeah, but the options if Edmure refuses are very Tywin-esque. He tells Edmure that he'll be merciless in his destruction of Riverrun and threatens the life of his unborn child. Then he leaves Edmure to be entertained by the singer. We can assume that there followed an interesting interlude between Edmure and Tomo Sevenstreams, who is one of the chief lieutenants of the BWB. 
Garrett Page and Lou Piper, sons of two of the presumably wolfish lords, are Jamie Squires and are also present. Yeah, I think we can guess that some communication occurred there. The next we see of Jamie and Edmure is in the Great Hall of River Run. The Blackfish has slipped out by the water gate under cover of night, and Edmure waited almost the entire day before surrendering the castle to the Lannisters. Right, Jamie notes that the Blackfish could be ten leagues downstream by this time, which would place him in the vicinity of Fairmarket, the last known location of Lady Stoneheart and a band of BWB and within very short distance of Pennytree, the location of the next act in the drama. Yeah, and Jamie thinks to himself, for a man who is going to spend the rest of his life as a prisoner, Edmure was entirely too pleased with himself. We wonder, of course, what reason Edmure has to be pleased. So now Lord Emmon Frey wants Edmure punished. After being told by his wife that he must hold the castle or abandon it, Lord Emmon replies... Riverrun is mine, and no man shall ever take it from me. Could this be foreshadowing of the retaking of Riverrun by Lady Stoneheart, perhaps, who now has an operative in the person of Tom O'Sevens actually inside the castle? Yes, I think it could. So, Edmure Tully and the Westerlings are sent to Casterly Rock with a guard of 400 men under the command of Sir Forley Prester. The Riverrun garrison is allowed to depart, Stripped of arms and armor, they vanish into the Riverlands. Sir Desmond Grell and Sir Robin Ryger alone elect to take the Black. These two are dispatched to take ship at Maidenpool with an escort of twelve of Gregor Clegane's men under the command of Raff the Sweetling. And we can't underestimate the significance of that particular journey. Rygar and Grell are heading for the Wall after having the opportunity to spend a day in consultation with Edmure Tully, one of the signers of Rob Stark's will. This is one of the key intersections of the Rivlands and Northern conspiracies, which, as we said, is something we'll address in a future instalment. But we wanted to stress that this mission will be known to the BWB, whom we think are now playing an active role in the politics of the region. Yeah, and as he leaves Riverrun, Jamie takes leave of the phrase and repeats the order he first issued in front of Edmure Tully and Thomas Evanstreens to Sir Ryman. King Tommen requires all the captives you took at the Red Wedding. And Jamie promises Lord Piper that the captives will be ransomed and gets this advice from Lord Carol Vance about Titus Blackwood. Lord Jamie, you must go to Raventree. So long as it's Jonas at his gates, Titus will never yield. But I know he will bend his knee for you. So we think it's worth noting that Lord Vance's Meister has been known to offer aid to the Brotherhood Without Banners. Way back in A Storm of Swords, Lord Beric says, We dare not go blindly here. I want to know where the armies are, the wolves and lions both. Sharna will know something, and Lord Vance's Meister will know more. So it could be significant that it's ultimately Lord Vance who urges Jamie to venture personally to Raventree Hall, thus putting himself in BWB territory. Yeah, and at Raventree, Jamie meets Jonas Bracken and Titus Blackwood and settles the siege there, obtaining Blackwood's surrender. As Jamie takes his leave, he mentions that Riverrun awaits. Now Blackwood makes this odd rejoinder. Riverrun or King's Landing? 
Yeah, it's almost as if he wants to ascertain Jamie's next steps, perhaps. Could this be a hint here of an undercurrent of communication regarding the Lord Commander's movements? Well, I do think so. And as we've mentioned, that evening, Jamie and his tail camp at Pennytree. At midnight, his scouts return with a woman who is ridden up asking to be brought to him. It's Brienne of Tarth, and she tells Jamie that she has found the girl with the hound and that he must come at once and alone or she will be killed. And we know from Kevin's later conversation with Cersei, while she is imprisoned by the Faith, that Jamie does indeed depart with Brienne. And up to the point we have knowledge, he has not been heard from since. Of course, most speculation goes that Brienne has agreed to bring Jamie to the Brotherhood in exchange for Podrick's life, and maybe Sir Hyle Hunt's as well. We can only wait to see what will happen at this confrontation, and although it might seem a foregone conclusion, we are not so sure. No, we aren't sure. But back in Pennytree, we have Jamie's men left leaderless in the Riverlands. It seems plain that they do make it to Riverrun, since word has reached Sir Kevin that Jamie vanished with a woman, possibly Brienne. We wonder about the three boys, though. Lou Piper, Garrett Page and the hostage, Hoster Blackwood. Right. Now, the first two may have overheard the conversation between Edmure Tully and Thomas Evanstreams back in the tent at Riverrun. All three are aware of the escape of the Blackfish, and at least some of the movements of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Hoster Blackwood would know the countryside well. Would the confusion of Jamie's departure be a good occasion for the hostages to depart? Or do they remain as eyes and ears in the Lannister camp? Either way, I don't think we can ignore their presence and the fact that the sons of some of the more stark, loyal Riverlords are together. Once Mark Piper is freed from the twins, if these three have escaped, then the Lannisters have no hold over this particular trio of families. Yeah, and that's quite interesting. As for the freedom of Mark Piper, Great John Umber, and any other captives from the twins... It's plain that Tom O'Sevens knows of the order to send the captives to King's Landing. Since the Freys appear as witless as they are faithless, it seems quite possible the captives will be put on the King's Road with inadequate guards and maybe bump into the BWB. Right. So now let's get back to Edmure Tully and Jane Westerling heading west under a strong guard of 400 men. The Blackfish is at large, and the Riverrun garrison has been set free, albeit unarmed. Well, it's worth noting that after the release of the captives from the Twins and abandonment of Jamie's tail at Pennytree, the only remaining hostages the Lannisters have in their direct control are Edmure Tully and Jane Westerling. Yes, and also of extreme interest is that the Blackfish was presumably the mastermind behind the great Stark-Tully victory at Oxcross, which involved circumventing the Golden Tooth via a secret path discovered by Greywind. With the Riverrun garrison at large, we propose that the Blackfish means to take command of them once more and set out for the Westerlands to ambush Forley Prester's party and free Edmure and Jane, whose safety he's been charged with. Yeah, so that's what the Blackfish could be up to. And in support of this idea, we point to the Tully words, family, duty, honour. We learn in A Storm of Swords that upon his departure from Riverrun, King Rob named his great uncle 
Warden of the Southern Marches, and charged him with Queen Jane's protection. We think that Brendan Tully would fulfil his duty as Warden of the Southern Marches and Protector of the Queen, rescue Jane and his nephew, his last surviving family, and annihilate the Lannister host under Forley's command. And need we point out that to stand and fight is perhaps the most honourable and therefore characteristic action that Blackfish could take here. Yes, exactly. But the problem with this idea was the lack of a point of view character in the area to relay such a significant event. But we recently received a strong indication from George himself that we will see Forley's host early in the Winds of Winter. Yeah, and this is mildly spoilerish, of course, so block your ears if you don't want to hear. At the San Diego Comic-Con last summer, George revealed that we will see Jane Westerling in the prologue of the Winds of Winter. And this supports my long-term conviction that the opening pages of the Winds of Winter are going to show us an absolute shitstorm of Stark Tully vengeance. Yes, I like that. A shitstorm of Stark Tully vengeance. I think that's what everyone wants to read. And it does seem like a strong possibility now. And we think the problems of arms for the unarmed garrison will be solved by the BWB. They seem to have no problem overcoming good-sized groups of armed men. Besides the demonstrated availability of abandoned arms and armour throughout the Riverlands after all the fighting, each group of 12 or 15 men they ambush or kill adds to their supply. Yes, and then there's also Gendry. One has to wonder exactly what he's been doing at his forge at the inn. Gendry has been demonstrated to have the knowledge for blade forging. In the many months he's been at that forge, there can be no doubt that given the raw materials, he's had the time to forge, or at least mend, a great deal of weapons. Yeah, I think that would be the case. And the ambush of Prester's party can't happen in isolation. In order to preserve the delicate balance of rescue operations, there must be an established communications network. Right, and now let's revisit the words of Davin Lannister, who told Jamie, My scouts report fires in the high places at night. Signal fires, they think, as if there were a ring of watchers all around us. Yeah, the implication is that the BWB have established some kind of communication network that involves signal fires and spies. From camp followers and whores, Lord Vance's maester and Lady Smallwood, from Shana the innkeep and Tom O'Sevens, who's inside Riveron, they seem to have a far-flung network and an endless capacity to get the downtrodden people of the Riverlands to cooperate with them. Right, they do. And Riverrun is lightly garrisoned with a force of 200 Freys or Lannisters with a senior member of the Brotherhood in their midst. We know that any castle can be taken if the enemy can gain access. We've seen it repeatedly in the story and in Westeros history. And the Brotherhood now have the means to open the gates. That's right. They've become increasingly bold, hanging Lord Walder's hair and his escort of 15 armed men less than a day's march from the twins. Undefined bands of Stark supporters do remain at large, possibly numbering in the thousands. We think that Riverrun will fall at a time of Lady Stoneheart's choosing. 
Right, and turning our attention briefly to the twins, we think that a BWB attack there will be carefully planned to coincide with Lord Walder's death. We've had plenty of indication of the chaos that will occur when that happens, most clearly in Merritt Frey's point of view when he thinks, It was like to be every son for himself when the old man died, and every daughter as well. And looking back at Jamie's interview with Maria and Amory Frey at Castle Darry that we began with, they told him, Some of the river lords are hand in glove with Lord Berwick's men as well. The small folk too. Sir Harwin says they hide them and feed them, and when he asks where they've gone, they lie. They lie to their own lords. So put together with all this evidence we've just discussed, it really seems plain that the BWB have politicised their agenda in the Riverlands and are a strong and potent force there. Yes, it does. And with all the hints of plotting, spies and conspiracies, we're pretty confident that we're going to see a lot more of that agenda in the winds of winter. Yes, we are. And up next, we'll be doing a Where Are They Now roundup of the Brotherhood. But first, with Lady Stoneheart's band moving in and out of the neck, it's time for a word from today's sponsors. This episode of Radio Westeros brought to you by the Cranach Travelers Hostel. Ever wanted to be an adventurer? No place holds more mystery than the swamps of the neck, and the Cranach Traveler's Hostel provides the perfect base for adventure. Learn how to hunt frogs with prong and neck. See lizard lions with your own eyes. Are they crocodiles, alligators, or Komodo dragons? You'll get to find out for yourself. Space is limited, so make your reservation today. Cranach Traveler's Hostel, the budget accommodation for travelers on the move. And so, Lady Gwyn, do you like adventure travelling? Yes, yoke boy, I do. And I've always wanted to see a Cranog. But I'm not so sure about lizard lions. They sound a little frightening. Yes. Well, it sounds like you better think quick if you want to venture into the neck. And speaking of travelling, it's time for our final segment of the episode. As mentioned, we're going to do a roundup of the Brotherhood. Basically, a where-are-they-now piece. Yeah, we think it's important to leave with a picture of the last known movements of the members of the Brotherhood, so that we have an understanding of what pieces will be in play in the opening pages of The Winds of Winter. Right, so let's get started with our Brotherhood Without Banners locator. So, at the end of A Feast for Crows, we have a pretty good idea where a number of the Brotherhood are. The group with Lady Stoneheart is killing Freys and gathering orphan children in the Riverlands. We see her in Brienne's point of view, where we learn that she's just returned from Fair Market, the location of the ambush of Sir Ryman Frey. And as she's now in possession of Rob's crown, last seen with Ryman's Queen of Whores, we can be sure she was responsible for Ryman's death. With her are Lem Lemoncloak, Thoris of Mia, Jack B. Lucky and Mudge. There's also a young man in a sheepskin jerkin whose voice is frosted with accents of the north. And while this could well be Harwin, he's never named as such. But Lady Stoneheart is known to have gone into the Neck, the last known location of another young Northman in her service, Hal Mollen. So we think we cannot rule out the possibility that he has rejoined her service and that Harwin is away on another mission. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. 
Yes, so this young man in the sheepskin jerkin, by process of elimination, seems to be either Hal Mullen or Harwin, we think. And in the meantime, Gendry is at his forge at the Inn of the Crossroads, where, along with a young woman named Jane Heddle, he has the care of an unknown number of orphans the Lady Stoneheart Band have rescued and brought to them. This no doubt occurs in the course of their search for Arya Stark, which we know is ongoing since the group questions both Merit Frey and Brienne about Arya. So, of Lord Beric Dondarrion, we learn from Thoros that he is dead since he passed the gift on to Catelyn Stark after the Red Wedding. The last sighting of Lord Beric actually occurs in Arya's wolf dream when, through Nymeria's eyes, she sees men on horses with flapping black and yellow and pink wings and long, shiny claws in hand. And this can only be Beric, Lem, and Thoros. We haven't seen the group together since Arya was seized by Sander Clegane, so this actually represents the final sighting of Lord Beric. Yeah, and Tomo Seven's dreams is on assignment at River Run, where he has been witness to much of strategic interest to the BWB, as discussed in the last segment. Greenbeard and the Mad Huntsman were last known to be foraging for food south of the Manda in Storm. Interestingly, the appendix of A Feast for Crows lists them as part of Beric's band, but also calls them Beric's uncertain friend and sometime ally. We really don't know if this is significant, but it's true that they haven't been seen on page since they were mentioned being in the Reach. And also listed in Beric's band are his squire, Edric Dane of Starfall, and Angar the Archer of the Dornish Marches. Neither of them has been seen since Arya's point of view in A Storm of Swords. Wadi the Miller, Swampy Meg, who's the only named female member prior to Lady Stoneheart, John O'Nutton in Merida Moontown, are all at large and also listed in the Feast Appendix as part of Beric's group, although it's really uncertain what that designation means since Beric himself is listed as dead. Yeah, so it's not clear what has happened to this group, and perhaps that's the point. We think it's likely that Watty, Swampy Meg, John O'Nutton and Merito Moontown could be in the area of the Neck, as that seems to be their place of origin. And we know the Lady Stoneheart Band has travelled back and forth into the Neck. But what of Edric Dane and Angai? Have they retreated to Dorne so that Edric, who's also known as Ned, can take up his lordship and bring his aunt the news of Lord Beric's death? This makes sense to us, especially if you consider that the Danes appear to be in need of a young man to fill the office of Sword of the Morning. And while we don't know if Ned will prove worthy, and it's made clear that the office of Sword of the Morning can remain vacant until a worthy night arises, we speculate that we are given just enough information about the office and the Dane family because they'll be significant in the story to come. Since it seems unlikely that Ned Dane would remain in the Rivlands killing Freys after Lord Beric's death, when his own lands remain largely untouched by the war, we think the fact that he and the only other Dornishmen in the group are missing is no accident. So Edric Dane returning to Starfall, given he has the news of Beric's death to pass on to his aunt, who was of course Beric's fiancée, makes perfect sense, we think. 
So it's clear that for some time, the mission of the Brotherhood Without Banners has been somewhat corrupted. What started with stealing from those that could afford it to aid the small folk devastated by the war has evolved into a mission of vengeance. It seems that there's still an effort to help, as in the sheltering of orphans at the inn, but following the Red Wedding and the resurrection of Catelyn Stark, the group has become highly politicized. Yeah, it has. Thoris tells Brienne in A Feast for Crows, My lady, I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms, but do not look for them here. So the group under Lady Stoneheart seems to have as its principal goal the destruction of House Frey. From Peter Pimple and Merritt to Sir Ryman, Freys have been targeted and executed. As Jamie thinks in A Feast for Crows, these outlaws are growing bold if they dare hang Lord Walder's heir not a day's ride from the twins. And in our next episode, we'll be covering Catelyn Stark. So we'll get more into depth about the Red Wedding and Lady Stoneheart there. For today, we'll leave with the observation that the Brotherhood Without Banners have strayed far, far from their original mission statement that we discussed earlier. Yeah, as Thoros also says to Brienne in Feast for Crows, Justice? I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights and heroes. But some nights are dark and full of terror, milady. War makes monsters of us all. And so, that's our look at the Brotherhood Without Banners, the last King's Men in the Riverlands. As we said, we'll be back soon with a look at Catelyn Stark, aka Lady Stoneheart, where we'll be sure to take on the part of her story that intersects with the BWB. But as always, before we go, we have to give credit where credit is due for the creations used here today. Yes, so thanks to George R. R. Martin for the world of Westeros, and also to Nine Inch Nails for allowing us to use elements of their music today. And also thanks to Kevin McLeod for the licensing to use his song Folk Round, which we used throughout the show, and for the Maiden of the Tree rendition. Check out his website in Compitech.com for royalty-free music. And speaking of websites, visit RadioWesteros.com to comment on our content, read our accompanying essays, and reach our social media and all of our featured guests and artists. Right. We always love to hear from you listeners, so come by and tell us what you think of the show and where you'd be interested to see. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's take it. So until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.